Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we have the Zoom team, Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocatello, and Sam Kakaiko are going to be here. And they're going to talk about the incredible visual <laughs> process that they built for Zoomtopia. Um, they had Unreal Engine, they had lots of people from Zoom, and they're going to show a demo of that. So we're really excited about that in the second hour. So stay tuned for that. And if you've got questions specifically, not so much about Zoom, they'll come back and talk about Zoom in general on another show. But if you have questions about their presentation on Zoomtopia, go ahead and throw those into Makana right now. And if you've got general questions and you're not in Makana, um, of course, you can use, you can go to askofficehours.global. That's askofficehours.global. And you can actually use that uh, any time of the day. So 24-7, you can throw questions in there. So if they just come to you, just go ahead and throw those in and then we'll feed them into the system uh, during the during the show. So um, So just go ahead and throw those questions in right now or later in the day, or any time of the day. So you can go ahead and throw those in. But if you're in Makana, go ahead and vote those questions up so we know what order you'd like us to answer them in. And let's go ahead and jump into those questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes to us from Samuel Nordvik in Norway. And Samuel says, what kind of image or video background would you choose to put on a monitor that's out of focus in your background, similar to what John, I assume he means John Preto, has behind him today? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jonas. I think it really depends on the placement of your monitor. I personally wouldn't place it like John is, because what you really want to do, think about what do you want to achieve with the shot of your image. Let's say it's for Zoom, then you probably want to make sure you want to tell a bit of a story, maybe like, hey, you're experiencing XYZ, but you also want people to have a really easy time listening to you. That's why we have great mics. That's why we have properly lit faces and all that. So think about what you can do that doesn't uh, distract people from your face. So for example, you could do something soft that is like really slowly moving. Um, you could put your logo there with a really slow moving animation or you put uh, something that you want to show there. Or if you want to go like full in, you put the monitor on an angle and put it behind you. So you can use it as like a virtual screen, make sure that the monitor is large enough. And then you can find really cool shots. Um, if you use mid-journey, what you can do is you can let it describe at a certain uh, height, like you measure the height of your camera above the ground and give it all the parameters of your camera and then let it generate photos. It won't get it correctly all the time, but that's a really great way to get a good perspective for the background so it looks believable. And then you can have it be a window to wherever you want to be on the world. That's what I would do, but make sure that it helps you and not just is a nice tech thing to show off because I think it's really important that you keep in mind what does this shot do and what are you trying to do with it and not just have a monitor there for the sake of having the monitor there. Good, Gordon. Yeah, you almost made some really good points there. You don't want to have anything that's too flashy, too bright, or moving too much because it's going to distract you from the foreground. Uh, that's why you see a lot of times in uh, network broadcasting, they'll have these generic backgrounds. They may be pertinent to, let's say, if they're talking about the, the financial section, they'll have, you know, out of focus money or something, but it, and there'll be something that'll, some little pieces are slowly moving, but nothing too distracting, nothing uh, moving quickly, nothing that's very bright and something that can move in a repetitive uh, 
in a repetitive loop without seeing the loop seam because every time a loop seam goes by, it's going to attract you because you're going to see something change all at once. So uh, that's my suggestion. And don't have it too bright. Take the brightness down on it to make sure that it's not uh, brighter than the foreground object. Jeffrey? So I actually do have my monitor exactly the way Predos has his, except it's a little bit off more to the right. And the reason why is because I have uh, multiple shots down in the studio. I have the main head shot where I'm talking about something. Then I have the product shot where I'll zoom out a little bit that sees my table. And that's where that monitor comes in because uh, most likely uh, you'll be see also be seeing from a different angle the product that I'm, I'm looking at. That's for any type of product type of things like that. Uh, using, I, I'm not a big fan of using it as other people said. I'm just watching the West Wing uh, uh, reruns. And I, every time that they go in these rooms where they have these uh, news segments going on, I'm focusing more on those news segments than anything. A little bit of distraction in some cases is always a good thing because, you know, then they get focused on what you're saying and then they just completely space out. But then if they look in the background and they go, oh, you got a picture where you've been to Paris or something like that. Then that kind of keeps them in the uh, in the in the full play of things. So a little bit of distraction is great, but I think that uh, as everybody else said, if it's not being used for something very uh, important, then uh, it probably is a good idea not to put the monitor in in the in the shot. Good, Mitchell. Is there a problem uh, using copywritten material? Like, uh, let's had your Apple TV on, and it was showing the Apple uh, interstitial uh, videos of the Grand Canyon or the Earth. Are there problems with that? Uh, technically, yes. Will anyone do anything about it if it's out of focus behind you? No, no one's not going to do anything. <laughs> like, so, so it's like it's if it's if it's framed off to one side and it's and it's low resolution, you're not going to. I mean, if it's out of focus, no one's going to ever notice like you know or or you know now if, if i was going to do it on a large commercial broadcast i would definitely think about that um and what i put behind mine now i um Preda, what what do you have behind uh what is that what what do you have in the in the in the videos there is it just news on mine yeah sorry somebody else was talking to me um this is a this is a tv broadcast news station like you know 15 right. 16 monitors and then, it's, right. and then it's blurred yeah yeah yeah. So, so the, um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things like what, if I put a full, <laughs> excuse me, a full background behind me, then I, I buy that, that I either take that picture or I buy the picture, but I own, you know, like I own rights to it. Um, I don't put a random photo behind me, um, uh, for what, what Preto's doing. I think that once it's out of focus, it doesn't, no one's going to, no one's going to even know or care what it, what's back there. Yeah. Go ahead, Courtney. One thing I have a little technical thing I forgot to mention is if you're going to use a, an LCD monitor, a big, you know, like a 75 inch or something like that, and you're going to adjust the brightness, uh, try to keep the backlight at 100% because a lot of times the ones that have the LED backlights and have an adjustable backlight will have a chopper in there that will uh, uh, cause a flicker if you remove, if you reduce the backlight from 100%. So make sure the backlight's set to 100%, then just bring down the brightness and contrast uh, on the controls of the monitor. And make sure you test it with your camera at your lighting level that you're gonna be using. Because <clears throat> as the lighting level changes, the sample rate of the camera a lot of times will change to accommodate the brightness. And then your monitor can end up flickering, which is gonna be very annoying. Next question. 
Steve Uroff comes up next from Madison, Wisconsin, and Steve says this time, Discord doesn't have starred or favorites to prioritize text channels of interest. Does the panel have tips on easily returning to preferred channels without enabling notifications for all posts? Go ahead, Jonas. One of the great things if you become a community server on Discord is that you get to select categories. Because what Discord realizes is there's a lot of servers like ours where you have a common interest, but then there's also a lot of niche interests. So like I'm on a server for Cloudflare as an example, and I'm really only interested in Stream and a couple other products. What Discord has done is for those community services, you can go into the settings of the server and you can select what categories or what specific channels you want to see. And then it will not even show you the channels at all. For example, if you're not interested at all in, let's say, Final Cut tips because you added with Resolve, you could say, hey, actually, I don't need that channel in the Office Hours uh, Discord. But what I would say is you can mute specific channels and then just give specific channels the possibility to send you notifications. And then what a lot of people don't know is uh, you can check your inbox. So what you can do is in the top right of Discord, there's this little icon. If you click that, you see all the messages are listed by channel. And that way you can also just uh, view all for a channel. Like if there was a long discussion in, let's say, the educational part of office hours, you can just read all for that channel and then you can have a quick scan through, is it interesting for me or not? And then just click it away instead of like clicking every single message. Yeah, I I don't, and I have to admit, so for, for me, on Sunday night, I have decided that I've read as much as I'm going to read of office hours and I re mark the entire server as read. Um, and then I just start over again, <laughs> you know, and so, and I find that that was, I needed to do that because otherwise I didn't know what was happening. And so I get to see which ones are active and which ones are not. I don't try to isolate a certain channel. And I find it interesting, um, you know, it's been something because I'm on, I'm probably on 20 or 30 servers on Discord and I don't look at all of them every time. You know, I, I, there's probably four or five that I spend a lot of time in. And I noticed that I kind of scan the ones that have very few channels I, I scan them pretty quickly and make, you know, I look at a lot of the stuff that's posted there. The one downside of it, though, is that the conversations are much, you know, lighter. <laughs> you know, like the 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 deeper, th the number of categories and threads means that there's just deeper conversations going on inside of that. And so that's been kind of the thing that I look at there. But again, I, I turn, I twirl up almost everything except for the one, the areas that I really pay a lot of attention to. I kind of tw <clears throat> twirl all the, all the things up there to make, so that I don't, you know, they pop open when, when there's something there, but otherwise they don't, I don't have to look at, look at a big, as long a list. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I think that you have to look at that. But I, again, I would recommend thinking about resetting every week. Um, you know, I know it sounds crazy to a lot of people, but if you're not going to get the, the conversation gets old, you know, and so, so, you know, just, just let it go. And, and, and then, then you get to see what's actively running at any given time. You can always go back and look at those, but I, I found that it took a lot of psychological pressure off of me by doing it that way. Um, next question. John Fultz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania is up next. Could we discuss audio mixes for NFL broadcasts? Some networks run the game sound so low it doesn't feel like a live event. Others run it so loud it's hard to hear the commentators. What do panelists prefer? I go ahead, Mitchell. 
uh, properly mixed 5.1 uh, mix, uh, the, the problem starts to happen if they start putting the uh, center channel on the left and the right instead of using the actual center channel. And then mix compatibility, uh, they should check their mix uh, against a stereo and a mono mix to make sure they're not uh, getting center channel buildup or other issues that uh, could cause exactly what you're describing. But uh, in a perfect world, a 5.1 uh, mix would be fine if it was done correctly. Yeah, I find that most of the ones that I see, at least at least on YouTube, on the YouTube TV, I'm I'm getting five dot one um, for a lot of them, and um, and I have a surround system. I will say it adds the it adds it makes this program more stressful. I haven't decided if I really like it or not because I really hear it on the sides, um, and I hear the announcers just fine. But I do think what you're what you're talking about could be also it may not be on their side. It may be an improper fold down. Um, to stereo for your side too. So the question is, do you have a five one or a or a sound bar or other things um, that because if it's just stereo, if you're just in a regular stereo environment, your system may not be folding down correctly. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what Alex said, I, I found a lot of times that uh, the error it may happen at the, your local TV station because some bozo will be hooking up the left channel and the right channel feed into something and they won't observe the polarity of which is the high and which is the low side of that balanced signal and it'll get out of phase. And that phase reversal will cause all kinds of problems in the fold down when it gets to your house. So uh, check also uh, your home system can have phase problems as well. So and make sure that you're monitoring your TV, if it is only capable of 2.1, let's say, or just stereo PCM, that you put that feed in stereo PCM feed. If you have it in 5.1 and you've got two point, you know, you've got uh, two channel stereo, it's going to sound, it's going to fold down and cause issues with the balance between the, the background sounds and the foreground sounds. Will it'll it'll dump the dialogue down and make it a lot lower, and it'll make the uh, surround sounds, what should be just the crowd noise, too loud to hear the announcers. Yeah, if it really sounds like it's very very low, Courtney's hundred percent right that that it, you know basically the way surround works it's left right center and then um LFE typically or your bass and then uh left surround right surround and if it only grabs the first two channels and they properly mixed it as Mitch said to the center channel the, all the dialogues coming down the center channel you'll only hear a little bit of of the of the dialogue going through that system because it's grabbing left and right and there's usually a little bit of a reverb that they add to that to go out to the left and right and that's all you're hearing so so your phantom center of their of their dialogue will be off you know and so that's something to kind of consider by the way technical term uh, that that Courtney threw out that I want to make sure we define is bozo bozo is someone that is a in a technical position they think that they're technical but they're not technical. <laughs> that's a bozo. Anyway, Larry Harmon has sued people over use of bozo. You know, <laughs> but that, that's because he owns that. That's the that technical trademark. term. They are in a technical position. They think that they're technical, but they're not technical, and that makes them a bozo. Um. Anyway, go ahead, Bill. So, in making mixes for various distributions, and I have to do this all the time, this is one of the most difficult challenges because you've got a, a set of end users who are in 5.1 or 7.1 or they have great systems and they've got subwoofers and they've got everything going on. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got some guy who's out there carrying a transistor radio from 1965 and wants to be able to hear everything exactly the same way, at least with in terms of clarity and not diminish that. And that is a very difficult 
difficult thing to do. We People have touched on things like phase problems. Uh, when you fold down from you have six channels or eight channels or 13 channels down to one, is, does everything live in its own space such that you can hear the commentators and you can still hear the music, even though the music was stereo originally and you're collapsing it down to mono? It's very, it's very technical and very difficult. And I just... You know, the the big problem for me is, do I mix for the largest group of everyone and diminish what I could deliver for the high-end people and even diminish what I could deliver for the mid-people? Or do I try to find the middle target mix for them? Or is my most of my market the high-end and I need to make sure that the 5-1 is perfect? It is very difficult to serve this many masters in audio mix, mastering and mixing. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, Bill brings up a good point because uh, you can't mix for every possible scenario. Um, the other thing is check your TV because some of them like to simulate stereo or simulate surround, and it does all kinds of weird things to phase. Some people like it. I, it drives me nuts. Anything that does anything with the phase relationship, and you have no idea that something that was mixed for 5.1 that got mixed uh, down to uh, stereo now being uh, turned into a, a simulated surround, all kinds of weird things can happen. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael. Has anyone worked with Home Assistant or similar open source home automation tools? I'm starting to use Home Assistant, and I'm very impressed, he says. Go ahead, Courtney. I try and stay away with from the things that require a host or a, something to run on your network, uh, like uh, that you know, requires a separate piece of hardware, like a hub. Um especially if it's something like open source like this that runs on a Raspberry Pi or runs on a PC or Mac, uh, because it has to be booted up, you have to launch that software and you have to, uh, you know, make sure everything's connected to the network. And in a power failure, those things go down and then you have to make sure they come back up running. And that's not easy to do a lot of times on a PC or a Mac uh, to make sure that it comes back up running, loads the program and goes into whatever mode it needs to go into to control your home. I like the ones, I like stuff that just uh, goes out over the internet is compatible with Alexa or, uh, sorry about that, uh, the A-Lady or the uh uh, home assistant from the the G people, because uh, they will always come back up running. They always will reconnect to the network after a power failure, and uh, all of my IoT things talk directly. Uh, use the protocols that talk directly to them. I go with Jason. Yes, I, I've used Home Assistant. It's very impressive. My issue with it is that all that benefit to the security of HomeKit goes right out the window because it just completely violates the whole thing. Jonas? If you're interested in doing automation within a Home Assistant, what I would do is uh, get the Node-RED integration, which then allows you to lay out a node. You then get a full nodal editor, and Alex is going to love this, where you have all your little blocks, and then you can do all your custom behavior. And oh, yeah. there's a lot of movement there right now. There's a really cool new sensor that uses millimeter wave to detect where in the room the movement is. So, oh, like, nice. if you go to your um, table within, like, to your kitchen table, it would turn on that light. And if you go to your sofa, it starts the TV and uh, dims all the other light. So there's some really cool tech coming in this industry. But the one thing you also need to be aware of is a recovery plan. And if you live with someone else, they'll hate how much you need to tinker with the basic stuff that worked before you made it smart often. Because there are still bugs in it. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, 
for whatever reason, I updated my my computer, and then none of my little light thing that I do with the, all the lights turning on just stopped working. Like it just wasn't yeah. working. And then I came back the next day, and it was working just fine. Like, and I was like, I don't know. What to do. Like, I, didn't do it. I gave up on it, and I was like, I don't know what to do here. And then I came back, and it was working. And I was just like, oh, even if Apple's having trouble, this is a this is a deep this is a deep water. Yeah, uh, yeah. Next question. Roscoe Jones is up next from Provostown, Massachusetts. If film belongs to Aerie and TV shows belong to Sony, where does that leave Canon, Red, and others? Do you need to have a high-end presence to drive sales at lower levels? Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. I don't think the lines are drawn quite that distinctly because I know there are plenty of exceptions where, you know, Aerie is a good camera for certain things, as is Sony uh, for low light um, and things, but Aerie might have it for color. I think it's up to the DP to make a decision uh, because plenty of reds are being used in Canon even uh, on film. Um, I just shot a TV commercial in a uh, for a, a, a consignment store that's into wardrobe and fashion, and as much as I'm a Sony fanboy, we shot it with an Aerie because I wanted that beautiful Aerie color coming through. So I think it's up to the DP to make those decisions. I wouldn't draw a hard line that one is for film and one is for TV. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it does depend on the depth of the wallet of the producer, you know, because if they can afford the Aries, they will go with the Aries. But sometimes on a pilot or something where they don't have a lot of money, they will go with uh, a red or something cheaper because the DP will own a red and he knows the red and he has all the accessories for the red, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and can provide it at a cheap uh, weekly rate to the producer. A lot of times the producer will go for that route. Uh, so it depends on your budget a lot of times. And a lot of times uh, even... Even shows that have uh, Aries uh, will use a you know red or a Canon or a, some other type of small camera to do uh, insert shots or non-significant shots, not part of the main drama, second unit shots. We used to shoot Dexter. We used to shoot all the stuff that takes place in a car. Uh, we had Aerie Alexis for the main main cameras, but all the stuff, in, and we had EX3s or something, Sony EX3s, camcorders that we recorded all the stuff inside the cars with. So just depends on your situation and what works best for the setup. And as someone who used to own three EX3s, I can tell you that your iPhone is a much higher quality uh, camera than those EX3s were. <laughs> so so I, I, I shot a lot, a lot of footage on EX3s and EX1s. Uh, those are my first like working cameras, you know, that, that we just shot end over end. And um, they were, I mean, they were, they were great for what they were. But when I look back at it, even the little, we were talking about the DJI, um, you know, little handy cam that is a higher quality um, camera than the EX3. <laughs> you know, the footage that's coming out of that camera is better than what the EX3 is produced. So, so when you think about what you can and can't do, um, just just know that the, the new technology is unbelievable. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Uh, Courtney brings up a good point because, uh, you know, there's certain games you can play with a rental house, for example. If you're heading into a Thursday and Friday and you need a two-day rental, chances are you could ask them to keep it over the weekend and maybe pay a one-day rent a rental fee for that. So there's all kinds of games that have to be played because, you know, margins are tight for people. But generally, you're going to go for the best, maybe better camera than you can afford uh, and try to make things work there. Yeah, and we have to remember that a lot of these, the, the cameras that you're seeing in film, film is not necessarily uh, that, that cost-sensitive when it comes to cameras. They're, they're what the DP wants, that, you know, for the larger films. They're not trying to think about how much these cameras cost because they are, the camera cost, the rental on the cameras is a tiny percentage of the production budget. <laughs> so, so it just isn't, it doesn't matter to them. So, so, you know, renting a camera, you know, a kit might cost... 
you know, to put it in perspective, you've got a, a $50 million film that you're putting together and your camera cost at, if you have a relationship with, you know, Dynamic or some of the folks that are down in LA, you may be only paying $3,000 to $4,000 a week for that camera. So you don't, you're not buying an $80,000 camera, you're paying $4,000 a week, you got a 30 day shoot or a 45 day shoot, you know, that's, you know, out of a $50 million film, your camera is costing you 20 grand, 30 grand, some, somewhere in that range. You know, lenses might cost more, but that's that would happen with any camera. So so the point is, is that you're not putting a lot into the camera itself, that camera body. So they don't care what the cost is of the camera. They just want the best, they just want the best uh, curves and the, and, and color, you know, and everything else that they, they can get. And so that's why Aerie and the Sony um, Venices and Aerie really, and then Sony Venices are a little bit more convenient uh, in, a, in a TV environment. So that's why they get, they tend to get used a little bit more. Um, but the thing to remember when you think about camera sales is this this picture, this up here right there, that's the film market. <laughs> like, like, you know, like, so, so this is, when it comes to camera sales, film market is this. This is everything else. And so this is why, um, you know, Blackmagic and Canon and even Red have, you know, um, have now there's some people that are buying it aspirationally, but the reality is that in a controlled environment, not in a film environment, film, film is a very uncontrolled and very, uh, you know, um, uncontrolled environment. So you really want all that flexibility, but in a controlled environment for 99% of all the content shot, um, the, you, you can shoot with a black magic camera or a less expensive Sony camera or a red camera, and it will look identical to, to a, um, to an airy <laughs> like, so, so the, uh, you know, if, if you, if, but it, where, where the, where these cameras really step up is when I've got to do, I've got to do fast setups. I got to move. I got to make sure the thing's just going to, I just need it to turn on and work and look good in a fast environment. And so that, that's, there's a very distinct thing that happens there. But but there is an enormous number of people using all the other cameras, and they they're not they're not greatly affected um, by the fact that that most films are shot on Aries or or Sony's or Reds, uh, which is like not, like for major feature films, ninety eight percent are uh, Aries, Sony, Red. You know, are the ones that are being used. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, go figure. The new uh, creator sci fi thriller that's coming out was shot on this camera, a uh, yeah. Sony FX three. Why? I don't know why. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. I'd love to get Gareth Edwards on because I'm, I, I am curious. Like, I get the small camera. I get wanting to have a small light camera and doing it. Um, I don't totally get the FX three. You know, like it's, it is like it's, it's a the form factor. I would have gone for an FX six, um, and uh, you know, or a Komodo. You know, like for that kind of thing. They're 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 all very small and easy to to use. And so um, I, I thought that that was an interesting, really interesting puzzle. ILM you know, did the special effects, so you could ask your buddies there. Yeah, I, 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 um, I yeah, I, I haven't talked to anyone about that, but, but it's, but it is, it, it is a curious conundrum. And I think the only person that would know would be Gareth Edwards. <laughs> like, you know, about why they did that. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I saw a, a interview with him where he described why he did that. Is he said because they wanted to work with it. They're shooting. They were shooting all in many different 
international locations all over the world to give it that to capture the beauty of those international locations uh, rather than shooting in a studio or using cgi to create the backgrounds they were shooting the real the real setups and then they were adding their their special yeah. effects on top of that and so they wanted a really small light crew that they could travel easily with so they didn't want a you know six person camera crew they wanted a two three person camera crew no i i understand that so I, they I, wanted to keep a the a, you know a light camera on a, a handheld gimbal and uh, to move around quickly, you know, not have to lay 40 feet of dolly track to do one shot. You know. Now, to your point, using possibly like a DJI, um, you know, RS2 or something like that or RS3 would be a, a reason to pot potentially use the FX3 over the FX6. Because I think the FX6, once built up, would be maybe too heavy for the RS3. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but but I think that that's, but that's a really, that that could possibly be it. I mean, the, the weight, the FX3 weight would if you had like one of the very small, um, uh, you know, <clears throat> DJI stabilizers, then you would want to go with an FX3. So maybe that's the that's the reason for it. Anyway, point is, is that that I think that, and I think the Blackmagic has a real opportunity to to disrupt the market. I think their new full frame sensor looks really really interesting. If they can just add global shutter, I think that they would dig deep into this industry. You know, like, I think that's, that's really all that's missing for black magic to really, and they'll still do really well. They sell, we, I mean, we have shot most of our work with black magic cameras in the last four years, four or five years. Well, and i from pixel core. I mean, I had tons of Sony's and I moved from Sony to black magic and I shot, you know, I probably shot 90% of my, my work with black magic cameras. They're, they're great. You just have to know how to know how to use them. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from West Decker in Fort Worth, Texas. Reality Composer Pro inside Xcode's Open Developer Tools menu allows you to reprocess captures from iOS Reality Composer by selecting this path, File to New to New Object Capture Model, and then dragging in the .obj cap from iOS. Thoughts on the best quality settings along that path? You know, I've only been I've only been using the iOS version. I didn't, I, and until you asked this question, I didn't know that the that the that the Xcode version would would upres it. Um, so we're going to dig into that. You know, like and take a look at take a look at that and see what that what the what the quality difference is. It could be something where you get a higher resolution, but I don't know what the settings are because I haven't seen it because I didn't know it existed. Um, but I have to admit that the object capture part of uh, of Reality Composer wasn't in the phone until like a couple of weeks ago. So I hadn't, you know, I just started using the phone version of it, which has been impressive. Like it's a really well laid out um, capture system. I Right now I'm using Composer Pro to capture objects and I'm using Polycam, which I use almost every day. I was yesterday, we were looking at the new space that we're moving into and I just, I just was in the new space, just waving my camera around, and I had a 3D model. <laughs> I sent it over to Kevin. I was like, "As you're trying to figure out this stuff, this is here's here's a 3D model of that space." Um, yeah. Uh, next question. And thank you for the last one. Came in off our QR code system, and we appreciate that. Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware, here on the panel says, "Can you tell the border always works on the QR code we word? Can you tell if the border always works? There seems to be a difference between iOS and Android phones in that respect." I go, Jonas. It depends, but in this case, let's actually look at what it depends on. If we look at what a QR code actually is, there's a couple of informations that it gets. And what we do with the border is we're technically out of spec for a QR code, and it depends on the manufacturer how well they implemented the QR code spec. Would you see the green zone that is the quiet zone that normally um, 
that zone normally should be four or more modules and a module as you see um, in there it's one of those uh, pixels it should be four or more modules wide and that helps with the detection and depending on what uh, version of the qr code you use it might be harder for the phone to detect it and then depending on what version of the phone it is how much error correction it does and then what's also really interesting is um, if we look at the error correctioning levels, I'm not sure which one we use for office hours. There's like L, M, Q, and H. Depending on that, it also depends on how much um, you can lose. Because depending on that level, you can lose up to 30% of the uh, contents of a QR code if it's the right thing. If it cuts off like the half, then you're lost. But if it loses the 30, up to 30% of the contents of the QR code, it would still be readable. But the two things that we're probably doing wrong is um, having non uh, having the pixels different and the modules because we have some uh, rounded things and then not have enough uh, margin around it depending on the spec. And then it really depends on if the manufacturer feels like um, they implement it. And then even if we look um, at the error correctioning, we would see that the, it might have difficult reading the format info even if we don't have that um, border because it can't detect that where it ends. And then it's there's a couple things that come together because it can't detect that and then we have a rounded corner. So it's also hard to see where the timing ends and all of that fields fits together to it not being all the way spot on because we also have the outer and the inner eye uh, rounded so that also is like we're taking away a lot of information from your QR code that it normally has and then we also have a logo in the middle which also doesn't help because that's also where you would have um, replacements so we probably need to use a high error correction and do error correction every single time so there's a lot of attributing factors why we don't get a clear scan all the time but and those are things to consider yeah, and I, I made the QR code, and I make a lot of QR codes, um, and uh, I'm unwilling to uh, dumb down my QR codes for Android. Like, that's, I mean, that's the bottom line, because the iPhone works all the time <laughs> for the last five versions of it. And the thing is, is that it is, it is like, I, I feel like m those of us making QR codes should keep just pushing forward. So we do have a border there. Uh, it is set to, by the way, to high... Um, it's set to high high resiliency or whatever. I mean, I have it at the highest level that it that it, you can set it to 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 have that there, because it does make the scan much easier from angles and every, all kinds of other things. But I'm not going to be like you know I've I've used those QR codes with actually less of the spec than what we see there, and I get thousands of responses you know that are that are in you know uh, across the system. So it's working for a lot of people, and my my whole thing is is that it is un like we're now. 30 years into QR codes, it is unacceptable for the, for the Android operating system to not sort this out because Apple has sorted this out and it works upside down, sideways, turn sideways, anything, you know, it's hard to not get a QR code to work on an, on an Apple device. And this is, this is not being sorted out by Android and they need to figure it out. <laughs> but I am not going to dumb down and make mine look ugly like everybody else's just to follow some little spec when I have, you know, half of the f phones in the United States work perfectly, <laughs> you know, and so it's not my fault <laughs> that they can't figure that out. And so, um, so anyway, so I, I think that's, 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 I'm trying to, I will admit that I'm not willing to, 
to back off. And I think that, that Google needs to figure this out. Like, you know, whatever's going on in the Android system, they need to sort that out because Apple figured it out a long time ago, years ago. And, and this is something being used all the time. And those of us who make these QR codes, we want to be creative. We want them to not look ugly, like ugly little patches. You know, we want them to look nice and cool and have fun with them. And, and, uh, and Android needs to figure it out. <laughs> like, you know, so anyway, next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and Douglas this time asks, Fox Sports will be using custom-built drone fleet, or a custom-built drone fleet, for the 2023 World Series. Have you ever seen custom-built drones used in production instead of an off-the-shelf drone from DJI or another major maker? Go ahead, Jonas. First of all, those two things are not exclusive. There's also custom-made drones that use parts from DJI. A lot of them use uh, their goggles or their transmission. And yes, a lot of the drones that are being used in broadcast are at some point custom-made because you want to be able to service them really well. There's a lot of regulations that you need to follow if you fly this close to a huge amount of people or Sometimes you can get away by flying over the empty parking lot a while away, and then you want to put a really nice camera on there. So yes, it's often really custom drones. Um, Skyline TV, uh, Skyline in Germany has some really nice drone operators where they have like a, a hectocopter with like eight rotors instead of four. So that's also for resiliency. And there's a lot of considerations that go in there. Like you, depending on the director, you might want a different payload. You might want a different camera. So there's a lot of customization that you want to be able to do. And that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of custom drones. And then even the small drones, the um, FPV drones that you are starting to see in broadcasts used, they're all completely custom built because they might crash. And then you just want to be able to rebuild them fast or spec them like make a consideration we're in a field there where you make the consideration how fast do i want to fly how uh, like agile do i want to be or do you want to fly faster or uh, do you want to fly longer with like less battery that's the whole like it's a trade-off and that's why professionals then use professional tools and build their own thing it's like you wouldn't give every single venue uh, for football the same vision mixer because everybody needs their customizations Go ahead, Courtney. I've seen a lot of custom drones used in uh, motion picture production because a lot of times they'll sometimes want to hang an actual film camera under, underneath them uh, to shoot on film for the directors that want to shoot. You see a lot of these octocopters that Jonas was talking about. This is just a frame that you can buy for like 450 bucks and custom build your own octocopter. Um, you see these a lot with uh, uh, heavier type cameras with red cameras mounted underneath them. And in the case of sports, if you'll notice, they have to get waivers from the FAA if they're in the U.S. Uh, to fly over people. And a lot of times they will restrict their flight path to, especially baseball stadiums, because they're usually open air. <clears throat> You'll notice that the drone uh, POVs are, uh, the drone is moving in a very tight U-shaped circle that's right above the covered part of the stadium. So they're only flying over the roof of the stadium and never deviating out so that they get over the top of uh, people that are not covered by roof. Uh, so that will launch them from the roof and they will do that semicircle move to get those shots uh, and they will land on the roof. So there are a lot of restrictions when flying over people. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. 
Yeah, I've seen a lot of custom builds. The part that you will not see customized, in fact, I, I would say almost never customized, is the flight controller. And that's one of the reasons you see a lot of DJI stuff, even the older stuff. This was NAB 2014, and there, I think, is the exact same thing that Courtney just showed us um, with, what, a, a Lumix on it. This was a very, very long time ago. And um, so, yeah, the answer is yes, and it depends on the production. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. If I was flying an Airy LF because I needed that quality, I wouldn't trust it to an off-the-shelf uh, drone. Obviously, wouldn't be able to carry it. So I would expect something specifically made for it because that's an expensive crash um, if it happens. The other part is that I think that people are expecting more from the quality of the video they get from drone shots. It used to be that, oh, that's a drone shot. It's a POV. I kind of excused that it looks like a home video uh, shot. Nowadays, we're expecting it to look as impressive as everything else that's uh, being shown to them. So I could see putting expensive uh, video cameras up like an Airy making uh, a difference. Next question. Next one comes to us from Jason Robertshaw in Sarasota, Florida. Or is it? Yeah, that's the next one. Uh, and Jason says, use an old Apple TV 3 attached to an ATEM as a screensaver standby slideshow input through the iCloud photos. Apple removed that feature. Can you no longer log into iCloud? Any workarounds? You know, I think that this has to do with the third generation for some reason. I, so I don't, I don't think it's all. I, uh, um, I think it's, it's something. I don't know why that they've cut that one out specifically, but, but I think third and is fourth and above still work. Uh, go ahead, Jason. Yeah, Alex, you're exactly right. I, I think it had something to do with with the requirements of of iCloud needing to up its game as far as the authentication is concerned. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an authentication issue. And then there's chips in the fourth generation and above that support the authentication that's there. And they don't support them in, in the third Apple TV 3. So if you have a newer one, try it there and see if it actually works. Uh, next question. Next one comes to us from Scott Below in Appleton, Wisconsin. And Scott says, I have a six, I have six Apple TV 4Ks throughout my house. They're all set to stay awake and automatically keep tvOS up to date, but they never update on their own. I always need to update each of them manually. Any idea what could be causing this or how to fix it? Go ahead, Jonas. Some magic thing detecting that you're still using it and not wanting to interrupt your experience. So depending on what you're using it, let's say you use it as playback from Apple, iCloud or whatever you want to use with it, it might be like, hey, I'm still active, you can't update. If you want to manage them more reliably, I would look out for an MDM management like Jamf. They, that's one of the great things with the Apple TVs. You can actually manage them to an MDM and Apple actually allows you more things when you do that. You suddenly can install cool things like a browser. So now you could use a browser on your Apple TV, which is normally really hard to get to. And you can manage them all, all together, um, push updates to them that way and have them like give them serviceable um, slots. So you can say, hey, I don't really care to see those pictures from 3 to 6 a.m. And it'll tell the Apple TV that it's fine to restart during that time and give it a specific um, windows that it can work on. But that's what I would do. Uh, enroll them all into MDM, have more features, and get the added benefit of uh, being able to restart them all. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
I wouldn't let anything, any computer, any device connected to the Internet uh, automatically update because you never know what the consequences uh, would be. For example, our previous question talking about an Apple III with an update that uh, disallowed uh, using iCloud Photos, maybe you don't want that update. Maybe you'd like to keep it back to the old ways. And uh, as long as they support that, that's a good way to do it. But I say manual all the time. Yeah, I think I do think that if you let it, if you turn off the stay awake, it'll update automatically. Next question. Next one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, and Paul says they just announced an X-Real Air 2 Pro model with AR-VR glasses, has a four-foot cable, a light guard on the VR cover, way better spatial audio speakers. It comes in red now, I guess, and it has a $450 U.S. price tag. Comments? Normally, I would say this is the price we pay for jumping on the bandwagon and, and a bunch of us getting these glasses. And and then, of course, you know, because they're on sale. Anytime something's on sale, I, I've kind of learned that I probably shouldn't get it. But there was no way I was going to, I don't feel as bad about this one as there's no way I'd pay 450 for something like this. But at 330, it was like, ah, give it a shot. So the, there was definitely a price thing. So I don't feel bad about buying the one that I have. I, I do like it. I've watched a couple movies on it. It's kind of nice to be able to just kind of lay in bed and put the glasses on, put your headset on and just watch a movie when I was sick, especially. <laughs> so, so like it was, it was great when I was like, uh, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere else in the house because I had COVID last week. And so I'd sit there and just lay there and watch a movie instead of watching the TV. So, so I think that it, it's worth it, but I do think it's a, it's a word of caution. Anytime you see something that has a, has a sale that looks pretty good, there's probably another version coming. You might want to think about that. Yeah, go ahead, Jonas. I just went to the website, and the only thing I want to find out is uh, how awesome I find it that they have a tooth-tested uh, colors, just like the German uh, institute that you would normally use uh, to check for your car insurance and make sure that your car is all up to date and they also test displays, and they let their displays tested by them, which is, I think, the first time I've seen that on a website advertised. I'm just curious because no one will know that what that is outside of uh, Germany. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, really like, weird. I, saw it. I was like, what does that mean? Yeah. Like, I don't, you know, like, <laughs> so the, everybody in the world except for Germans are, are going, I don't understand, like, why. So evidently, they, they, I think they must feel like there's a very strong market in Germany for, uh, for these glasses. They do look pretty impressive. I will say that the older version, the one that I have, um, is a pretty good experience. Like it, it is definitely, I see myself when I fly taking it with me and throwing them on and putting headphones on and not having to, cause I don't really do anything on a plane. I don't eat. I don't drink. I don't, I get into my seat and I just kind of bury in. And so for that kind of, for that, that kind of experience, this looks like it'll, I, I the one that I have, I think will be great. Um, I don't think I'm going to get the new one. Um, next question. Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington, has a simple question for Jonas. How would Jonas build Office Hours 3.whatever in the cloud? Go, Jonas. I, I think I would probably base it on vMix, especially with uh, the latest updates. Um, for those who haven't checked out vMix 27, they added over 150 new API methods. And a lot of them are really great, especially for developers like me who want to... Um, do things and like one of the things that has been really challenging with uh, trying to build an Office Hours clone is this gallery feed and all the different super sources that we have. Because if you look at it, it's like there's all these variations that you need, and then you need to map it out, and you need to be able to move them. And there wasn't an API to move boxes in vMix. Now they added um, an API, and uh, for another project we are working on actually um, doing a cloud version or like a vmix version of a smart gallery in uh, 
the little demo here that shows as soon as you type uh, the correct amount of boxes, it automatically figures out how many boxes can fit in a row and spreads them evenly. And now there's this task of like quantizing how should uh, a grid look, should all of the distances be the same? How do you want to spread them? But yeah, I would do it with vMix. I would use Zoom Rooms. And especially with Zoom Rooms Pro AV coming, you then would be able to just select who you want on what output. And then you can do it there. Um, we're building our automation in Node.js and I'm going to have a Vue.js front end where you can select the people and then it would flow that way. Um, yeah, but that's how I would do it. Yeah, and, and I think we're looking at 3.0. What we're looking at is uh, the attempt to really finish off the the HDR stuff with a dual pipeline where we have WebRTC and SRT um, doing into hardware to really push the outer envelope of the quality. So really, um, the cloud is probably for us 4.0, and we are actively talking about it. So so for you know that's the uh, and we're looking at hoping to have this in the cloud by 2025. Um, next question. Guy Cochran, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Alexander Knight from Port Coquitlam, BC, British Columbia, Canada. Has anyone looked at the new FreeFly Ember 5K global shutter camera? Looks pretty impressive with a very high frame rates and Super 35 sensor. And he's got a link there to the camera. You know, we always want to keep on. It, it's hard when, when we have uh, some of these are, are um, uh, it's hard to scan for this camera because it, it was just a video that I that was the link to it. So I, I, I'm a little uh, at, uh, let's see here, the... Um, yeah, it's hard to like, and then they have a link to their on their web page that is uh, to some kind of like you have to prove that you're a human. Like it is the worst marketing ever for a camera to to launch. So so anyway, uh, it 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 looks interesting. Um, it is it's yeah, again it's it's a really basic, um, you know it it and I don't see what the price is. Does anyone see what the price is here? It's really hard because I can't go to the website because they put something goofy in the front of it, and. Uh, um, and they, uh, or at least how the how this uh, link is built has been a little painful. Um, does anyone know what the price of this is? Go ahead, Courtney. Courtney, did you see it? You were on the website. Yeah, I'm looking on the website for a price. I don't see a price. It depends on probably how you configure it because there's lots of uh, you know little configuration details. It's a box camera. It looks like it's uh, you know a high speed box camera designed for cine. Uh, cinema work, uh, it'd be good to mount on those octocopter drones that we just looked at. Uh, so it's a body that you can put cinema lens on as a PL mount, I believe. Uh, so it looks pretty cool for doing uh, high-speed work. Uh, so if you want to do that slow-mo, since it can shoot 600 frames per second, 600p with a global shutter, uh, it'll be pretty handy to do uh, any high-speed work or any crash, you know, any action, action sports, that kind of stuff with, uh, to capture that stuff. I don't know if it has any transmitters or anything. I haven't had a chance to really read the uh, specs on it yet. But Yeah, uh, and the listing, the listing here has it at, um, well, it says in Adorama at least, the, the, and I don't know if it's the current one that they have, but it's another free fly camera. It says 5K. It looks like it's pretty similar to that. Um, it is, uh, says it's $18,000. And so, yeah. you know, the hard part, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they, I think that it's a pretty niche, uh, 
pretty niche market <laughs> for them to go into. Uh, so I think that in the past, a lot of their stuff has been drones and cable cams, and there's a lot of other things that they do. So they may have wanted to have something that they had a little bit more control over. But I think this is in about the 18000 And at $18,000, they're competing with other global shutter um, uh, cameras like the Komodo and other things that are far less than they are. And then they have, they're kind of like in an in-between, like they're not very well known, but they're charging well-known prices. So I think that, I think that that could be, um, could be a hard one to, to get over. So yeah. yeah B&H says $17,995. So $18,000, you are right. And uh, it does use a ProRes codec and it has a uh, Ethernet connection on it, I guess, for downloading your files. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, so. Yeah, but I, I I think that it's it's a pretty that's a pretty hard one. And the interface, I mean, in the in the in the things in the little passing that I saw in the in the video, uh, the interfaces matter. Like when you're in production, and theirs looks horrible. Like it looks like it was like written uh, twenty years ago. So so I think that they're not they. Um, yeah, they're not spending some of the money that they need to. I know that the, everyone, when engineers get involved and they just want to write something, that a lot of times, like hardware engineers, the, they'll think that the interface doesn't matter because it does the thing and has all the specs. But the camera operators will sit down and go, well, I'm not going to use that. <laughs> so so it, it's, the interface matters. So um, next question. This one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. He says, what is the Sony X-OCN format? Uh, this is a compression format that Sony uses that it thinks it, it thinks is better than everything else. So it's, you know, they've spent a lot of time, um, you know, really pushing the outer envelope of making it more efficient than things like ProRes and other things like that. Um, and so it is, um, you know, it, I I think that we we tend not to use it in a lot of the productions that I have because we want just all the bits. Like I'm not, I'm not that worried about it, but if you're doing news gathering, interviewing those types of things, I think some people find that it, you know, it, it can definitely save you a lot. And there's a couple different, you know, they have XT, ST, LT, you know, like kind of like the ProRes stuff. And, but even at their highest level, they're considerably lower. And of course they're arguing that that's lower at the same quality. Um, I haven't had enough time to, to, go through it completely to figure out exactly whether it is or not. But those are things to think about there. Um, next question. Next one comes from Chester Sweeney in Las Vegas, Nevada. Speaking of mixers, I'm looking at my Flow 8 and I saw the Yamaha AGO6 Mark II online and wondered if one is a ripoff of the other or do they just look like cousins like in this show, Patty Duke? <laughs> go ahead, Mitchell. <laughs> Because they're cousins, identical we'll, we'll, we'll cousins. Yes, yes, so I don't want to get a strike yeah. against this. Uh, it's, first of all, you're showing your age. Uh, the other mm. reason is that form and function uh, pretty much extend through all product lines. You know, you need the, the same kind of things, assignments, EQ, you know, digital buttons. I bet if you threw a Presonus in there, it's probably going to look very similar. I know the Rode uh, uh, GoPro, whatever the Rode Pro uh, thing that uh, Courtney has. There's a bunch of clones of that out there right now. So I just chalk it up to similar uh, functionality. Go ahead, Courtney. I don't know. I'm looking at this thing. It looks like an analog with a mixer with a USB, you know, feed on it. Uh, it looks typical of all the Behringer, the uh, Samsung, uh, you know, six six input that'll have two two mic preamps built into it. It's got rotary knobs. Uh, and it has a USB out, and a lot of times they'll have a couple of high impedance inputs on it, two RCA inputs for the the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh channels. Uh, 
but it doesn't look like a flow eight. I don't think. Maybe I'm confusing what the flow yeah, eight they, is. They, they they have a rudimentary connection, but not not much. It's just the erg, basic ergon ergonomics. Um, next question. Brett Bilo, uh, Appleton, Wisconsin's up next. My wife ordered the new DJI Osmo Pocket 3. The web page contradicts itself, saying that it, quote, first directly connects with the DJI mic, and it has a bundle with a TX transmitter. But the fine print says the Pocket 3 cannot directly connect without a separate mic RX. Do we know which is correct? That's what Brett's wondering. I go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, what, what I think it means is directly connects is there's a, a pogo plug on the bottom with a little adapter that goes to USB-C uh, that uh, I think will, that you can then take the receiver from the DJI microphones, which I have one here somewhere, uh, which is a little tiny receiver, but it has a, uh, on a it has a pogo plug, USB-C plug on it. And I think you can plug that into the USB-C right angle adapter on the bottom of the uh of the Pocket 3 and then put it, uh, attach it on board, but it doesn't have a receiver built into it, in other words. Go, Jeffrey. Yeah, that's why they have the creator kits, so they can sell you the uh, wireless uh, separately. And then, of course, as Courtney said, you do have the dongle if you need to put in a wired uh, microphone. And let us know how it works. We're excited to find out what it looks like. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next again. And could the Office Hours 2.x and any future 3.x platform be retooled as an enterprise production hub for an educational institution or corporation? If you built it properly, could even be a game changer for the education market. Yep. Um, I think that's we're going to be testing. We're working in conjunction with... Uh, with John Wallace's uh, build, and we're kind of, we're helping him get it tested, and he's helping us <laughs> through a transition. So we're kind of trading off back and forth there, and we're going to be, uh, but but I think that you're seeing the beginning of that. Um, I do think that this, when it comes to um, doing all hands, uh, education products, so on and so forth, what we figured out how to do here um, and uh, has been is something that, that could be used in a lot of different platforms. Um, it, and so we hope more people do what John did as, as far as building one out. And we're, I think O9O is looking at building one out um, again to do the similar things. So um, that's our goal. That's why we keep on talking about how it works and showing it is so that other people, anybody um, can uh, use this idea uh, for their own. Now, next question. David Brady in New York City says, what is a house of worship in its broadest sense, budget wireless method to get a camera into an ATEM? Uh, go ahead, uh, Mitchell. Uh, lean to the Hollyland. I think the Hollyland would be your best bet. You can check all the different models they have, but that's going to be priced right. Yeah, and I just think it's it's the distance that you're trying to cover. So, like, look at look at those things. There are little HDMI extenders that if you're only doing 20 or 30 feet, um, a lot of times, you know, you can use, like, things that are very industrial that are cost a mere couple hundred dollars um, to, to put together. But I think the Hollyland is probably the safest one, as, as Mitch said. Um, but also just always remember, try to get wires as close as you can to it. Uh, you know, I think people sometimes get, oh, I can just put everything in the back. But if you can get a receiver that's, you know, you just let the, let the wireless handle the last 10 feet or the last 20 feet. So you have the flexibility to move the camera without the wires, um, but you're not trying to make it work. Um, a lot of things work when you, when you do that. Uh, next question. Jonathan Michelson in Buenos Aires, Argentina says, will VMix 27's Zoom capabilities be available without a subscription? Isn't it disruptive compared to Zoom ISO or Zoom Rooms for NDI? I don't 
Yeah, I don't know how they're how they're managing that. I actually don't know the answer to the vMix question as to whether it, it, it there's a subscription required for it. Um, I think Zoom ISO and Zoom Rooms have always been they want to provide a, a an example and put and, and push that forward. But I, I don't think it's designed to. Um, they always want everyone else to use it uh, more than having it. They're not trying to make that the business model. The business model is having everybody um, make that work. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. And Peter says, follow up from Mitchell's QR code Q question and Jonas's answer. Do you foresee a future like in Minority Report where we have these Apple glasses, but everywhere we look, we have QR codes popping up in their ads and our HUD and our heads up display? Hopefully we can switch that off. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to switch it off. <laughs> so, by the way, I do want to uh, outline, uh, Jonas's answer was great about, I, I really want to see where he got all that data. Like the 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 data about the QR code was fantastic. I didn't. I think I was a little flippant with the fact that I'm very frustrated with uh, with Android phones and the fact that they're like a five years behind. Um, and uh, so I, I get a little edgy about that. But, but Jonas's answer was amazing. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill, real quick. I think there will be a beginning where it'll be like the billboard industry where for a while in the 60s and 70s, there were just too many billboards everywhere. And eventually they said, this is too much. People can't even drive down the road anymore. So they started regulating it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the um, uh, a quick quick reminder, we're going to be talking to we have the Zoom team here. We're very excited. We're going to have them here in just, in just a second to talk about uh, what it took to put on Zoomtopia uh, and the incredible AV work that was done there. So stay tuned for that. Um, quick reminder that, of course, Saturday is uh, open Q&A. Uh, we're also we're usually doing tests. One thing to know about starting tomorrow uh, we're nomads. <laughs> we're literally, as soon as this show, we, we kept the show because the Zoom team's coming. But um, as soon as this show ends, the uh, the office hours hardware goes down. Like it just, it just you know, it, it's going to go and we're moving it to a new location. Um, in the me- meantime, we're going to be testing it. We're probably going to come out of Zoom directly starting uh, tomorrow uh, for a couple days. And then we have another hardware mirror that's going up that, that will turn on probably sometime early next week. Um, they have almost all the bits and pieces there. And so we're going to be in kind of a test mode for a couple weeks um, where we're doing only Q&A and do some labs here and there. Um, But uh, anyway, stay tuned for more of that. Let's go ahead and, uh, and jump into the second hour. Welcome back to the second hour, and uh, we're really, really, really excited to have the Zoom team back. We've got Andy Carluccio, uh, Jonathan Kokaiko, and, um, and I'm sorry, Jonathan Cocatello, and uh, and Sam Kokaiko uh, here um, to, uh, to to share with us this amazing thing that that, that was put together for um, uh, for Zoomtopia. Which now I'm going to ask you first, what did last year look like? Before we go into what this year looked like, talk a little bit about what last year looked like. Can, uh, yeah, and we can and we can even show you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we um, okay. so last year um, we our focus was on trying to reimagine the way that we do these LED gallery walls, and the way that we did it last year was by having a table full of Zoom ISO machines, pulling out the individual participants as NDI, sending them over to Unreal Engine, having them all decoded in a big server farm that was rendering out the main stage output. And when we get into the presentation, Jonathan can share an image of what that looked like. The challenge for this year was how do we do a similar effect with a similar amount of like audience intimacy 
but in a more consolidated way with, with, with less infrastructure, more natively inside of Unreal Engine itself. And this directive came right from the top, right from Eric himself. When he looked at the setup last year, he said, I want to offer this experience to all Zoom customers. How do I do that in a way that doesn't involve tables and tables of decoder equipment and all of that? How do I make that more native to the experience? And we said, well, the way we would do it is build a plugin for Unreal Engine that lets us bring in the individual video feeds directly inside of the engine itself. So you don't have all this offboard extraction equipment. And what we did is he said, all right, let's make it happen for next year. So we built a, a Zoom toolkit for Unreal Engine that brings over 300 functions from our meeting SDK that you've probably seen before through Zoom OSC, as well as a full video pipeline that speaks directly to Unreal Engine's render target and material pipeline. So we built all of that out. And this year, the infrastructure went from a table full of decoding computers and a massive server rack doing the rendering down to a single desktop workstation running this plugin in Unreal Engine itself. So massive consolidation it went from over a quarter million dollars of equipment down to under $10,000. So massive savings on our side, massive savings that we can then pass on to our customers when they're doing their events because of this investment in the infrastructure. Um, and again, that, that focus on our side is on interactivity and engagement tools. So what are the kind of things that we can do to make these these gallery walls, less of just like a texture of Zoom video feeds where you can't even see what's going on because they're so these tiny boxes of screen scraped gallery views. What can we do to make this a more interactive experience? Really make that audience part of the conversation as well. So much of Zoomtopia's infrastructure this year was based around this idea that we had audiences at watch parties at AMC theaters. We had audiences in the room and we had audiences remotely over Zoom. How do we get them all in conversation with each other visually and technically with the same chat and Q&A pools and all of that stuff? So today we're going to break down a little bit more of how we did this inside of Unreal Engine. Um, we're actually going to spend quite a bit of time talking about just how to use Unreal for a live event, uh, which I think is a really exciting thing for us to explore. And then we'll talk about exactly how we had Zoom interact within that experience. How do we make that happen? Um, so if we're ready to jump in, I'll toss it over to Jonathan and we'll, yeah. we'll get started. Let's do it. Absolutely. All right, uh, over to you. All right, thank you. I'm going to begin by sharing my screen and just walking through a few uh, images of last year. Um, and then we'll dive into the Unreal Engine component and we'll show that. Um, so beginning with an image of last year, right? So uh, if you recall, we had a large LED screen uh, and on it we displayed a number of pieces of content from the iMag to animations, but we also had the virtual gallery. And in this context, uh, these were rendered through Unreal Engine, but all the video feeds were provided, uh, as Andy said, by Zoom ISO uh, from external systems. So we had multiple Zoom ISO machines providing those feeds over NDI into Unreal Engine to composite these bubbles. And they had some logic behind them, the way they floated in and floated out. Uh, but fundamentally, they were designed to have a two-dimensional approach to them. Now, this year, we decided to really focus on a three-dimensional approach and to leverage what Unreal Engine is capable of, um, especially because we now have the direct integration with Zoom uh, inside, so we get the video feeds directly instead of needing the external systems and the external management for the cycling. Um, so before I jump into the Unreal Engine and show the examples, just wanted to put up some references. Um, we had to match a graphic style provided by a design company. So the design agency uh, had the graphics for Zoomtopia, which were these uh, these three-dimensional shapes and floating objects uh, and these very soft colors uh, and the way that tied together. Now, this was good for us because Unreal Engine, of course, can do 3D very well, naturally, uh, with the lighting, with the global illumination, with the new lumen uh, lighting effects as well. Um, so this was a design style that, uh, that suited what we were trying to do very well. So I'll switch on over to showing Unreal Engine. 
And I will begin by just walking through uh, just the scenes that we laid out uh, in the order that we played them through, just so we have a context as to what was shown on the main stage there. So let me switch over to that. Okay, so if we could show the, uh, the gallery return feed that I have, and I will click through that. So what we had was a camera within the Unreal Engine scene that was outputting through a Blackmagic Decklink card, in this case an 8K Pro. We were outputting a 4K60 signal uh, to the, the LED wall graphics engine uh, to put up on the back wall. Now this was on continuously throughout the show uh, unless it was pulled off for graphics and other purposes. Um, so we had a few different pre-show looks that we put through. Um, this is an example of just an abstract shape that we would have. And then in our interface, which I'll show shortly, we can click through uh, when we need to change the scenes. So I'll go ahead and do that now. Um, so this is Unreal Engine simulating an editor, and then it's outputting the end result. Um, we were able to animate these camera moves, which again, will show exactly how we did that. Um, and then this was coming through that deck link output. Now, all of this was happening on the pre-show for the main stage. We also had an identical backup machine rendering the same thing so that we had the ability to switch back and forth at any time. You'll see just a teaser of some of the video feeds in the background of the gallery. We wanted to make sure that we we led into the gallery instead of leading into it and, and uh, showing it right away. Um, so we have these abstract shapes, again, inspired by the designs uh, from the graphics agency. I'll go to the next scene here where the camera pulls back a bit and shows some of that wide angle. Um, all of this is using the, the Lumen uh, ray tracing for the lighting. It's using advanced rendering effects. You can see the caustics on the back wall with the lighting, right? And then I'll go one more here. So we had the camera dip down. Uh, this actually happened off screen. There's a graphic that covered this, but this was preparing for our big opening. Um, and again, this all is of all these, in real time, right? This is all real time. This is all rendering from a computer I have down in my basement right now. Um, <laughs> and then we had the opening. So for the opening of the show, this is what we put together. Um, we have a camera flying in motion, past the water, past through the archway. Those video tiles had live Zoom participants. So this is the first time that we see those live participants during the show. Um, and then, of course, the tower is assembled and all the video feeds come together. And then we end on our final and our primary look uh, that we used throughout Zoomtopia. Um, now, you can see in the top left corner, uh, those are some live videos. Right now, I've set this to just include four live videos from here, right? Um, but we had up to 32 is what we were using for Zoomtopia. Yeah, so, uh, and, and those would cycle through if we had more participants available yeah. to choose from, um, but that's what we had there. I'll actually switch over to show you what the full thing looked like. So this is a pre-recorded video, but this is showing what it looks like with uh, a full gallery of participants. Um, and we had it set so that every 15 seconds, a tile would flip, and on the back side of that tile would be another participant. So that's how we seamlessly cycled through, uh, you know, 100 participants, one after the other, and we took advantage of the 3D fact that we could place a participant on the back side and flip it around. So uh, that was the whole effect we had, and this was primarily used behind Eric's keynote, as well as the fireside chat uh, on the, the uh, day two. Um, and then the next thing to show, we did have another moment that was kind of interesting. Uh, we, we had watch parties in AMC theaters that we brought into Zoomtopia, and we did so uh, not using the Zoom plugin. We brought them in through, um, through the Decklink card, but they were using Zoom ISO to provide that SDI output. So I'll show you what that looks like. So we went to uh, the AMC scene right here as part of the transition. Again, this was a promotion Zoom uh, has a partnership with AMC. Um, and then we also had the, uh, the AMC videos could come in and those were live videos coming from Zoom ISO of those watch parties. We had a reaction, we had a moment, and then we could bring those out. 
Um, so that's that's the majority of the scenes that I'll show. Um, we had a few other small looks and variations that we use for different moments, but essentially we clicked through one after the other those different scenes. That's great. And was the with that AMC graphic was that in three D or was that a two D still that that you kind of moved into there? Yeah, that that was all three D. In fact, uh, yeah. if you give me a moment to switch over, I can share my screen and we can we can look at the uh, Unreal Engine editor side of things, which I think yeah, will yeah. give some good context on that. Absolutely. All right. Okay, just making sure I'm ready. And there we go. So jumping into the Unreal Engine side of things, um, this was our editor display. Let me minimize that. Um, and there's a few things to note here. And again, you know, I, I understand we're, we're all at different points of uh, familiarity with Unreal Engine. Um, I know we've had discussions on this before here on Office Hours, but um, just to sort of walk through what you're seeing uh, on my window here, on the left-hand side, this is my play-in editor viewport. So this is the active simulation of the environment. Um, we have some UI elements that we created custom, which we have overlaid on top of this for us to control. On the right-hand side, you'll see the media capture panel. Um, this is how we are actually outputting to the Blackmagic output uh, for the SDI capture. Um, there's a few different ways you can do that in Unreal Engine, but this is the way we decided to do uh, to give the benefits that we needed. So we're outputting to the, the render target to the output you can see in the preview here. Now, I actually have the ability to move around this scene uh, completely um, and to, to inspect and explore because, again, this is a real-time rendering of what's happening in that scene. So everything you saw before of the camera moving through the scene was all real-time and rendered much like this with the camera floating through. So you can see, even by zooming in, right, you can see that the quality we have pulling in is quite good um, and has, you know, it, it's, uh, it's 30 FPS. Um, I think right now we're pulling in 360 just for, for um, efficiency and bandwidth but we can of course pull up to 1080 what Zoom is capable of. Um, so we had those video tiles up here, <laughs> there we go. Uh, and you can see our different layouts. We had some parallax and some depth to them just to give some interest. Uh, and then at the bottom here, this is where we can walk through our different moves. So we click these different buttons to transition from scene to scene. So I'll actually go ahead and stop the simulation right now. And then I'll back out and show you uh, just a little bit about how we animated those sequences because I think that's the, the key part to what we did. Um, and we were, you know, figuring this out as we went, um, but this is what we explored. So let me go to the sequencer. Now the sequencer is, if you're not familiar with it, it's how you do uh, like blueprints or cinematics within Unreal Engine. Um, and it's designed to be very similar to what you might expect from any animation program, uh, After Effects as an example, right? It's very, uh, let me go to the opening fly in here, if that works. It's your, your typical uh, timeline that you have different layers that you can keyframe with your different motions. Um, and you can see your shot compositions up at the top there. Uh, I'll also go ahead and, and open this up so we can see a bit of a thumbnail preview. Um, so I can play this out. And let me go ahead, actually, and um, make sure that we can see game view. There we go. Uh, I can explore this scene. You can see a bit more about what we have here. So um, the camera's all the way back here. Uh, over by the water, getting ready for its motion coming in. You can see over here we have all of the participants are scattered about because they come in in that opening shot. You can even see the AMC scene off to the corner here, ready to go for that portion. Uh, and you can see, right, this is a, a full three-dimensional uh, uh, positioning of objects for the AMC thing. Um, I'll go back and play this motion just so we can see it. In fact, actually, let me, let me backtrack just a little bit more, and I'll play the... Uh, let's do... This one, and then I'll do pre-show rail, just to talk about another thing we did. Um, so we made sure that our camera was consistent from each scene to scene. The way we decided to do the motion from scene to scene is to have the have a single camera 
continuously outputting the whole time. And then what we did is we made sure that the ending position of the camera in one sequence matches the starting position in the other sequence so we could have a seamless transition one to the other. Um, now, this, this made it a little bit difficult with the amount of camera motion that we had. We had some solutions for that. So just as an example of this opening motion, which I'll play out now, this camera here moves back. We're actually doing that by animating the offset from the rail from its original origin location. So we animate the offset back to zero. Then we begin animating the rail so that it can move position along this arc. And then as we do so, we also add back in some offset so we can move it back, right? In addition, we have a focus target so that we can animate where it's looking at and what the focus is, right? All of these camera controls exist within Unreal Engine and we are detailing them out through the sequencer. Then moving to the opening again, this big sequence here, we have the camera back here ready to go for its motion. I'll make sure that that plays out. And you can see the camera coming through along its rail. You can see the preview of uh, the effect. You can see an object floating in front of it, which is where it's looking at. And you'll see that object jump to the tower as it comes in. Forgive me for that jerky motion. Um, and then everything comes together. The camera moves back to its position. And of course, we can animate everything from the focal length to the iris. And all of that we play with to make sure we have the right depth of field and the right effect that we need. So I'll leave it at that just to, to keep moving here. But, um, you know, I, again, the thing I want to impress is that what we did is we, we chose to use the sequencer workflow. There's other things we could have done in Unreal Engine, but this gave us the maximum flexibility to make edits live and to quickly uh, animate whatever we needed to do. So for example, um, I'll do another one. I'll go to the AMZ exit. So we're in the AMZ scene. You'll notice that the colors have changed. And this is because we can also animate the material colors. So we have that the whole scenes and the lighting change. And then as this pulls out, one thing to mention is that we are uh, we are exploring different visibility levels. So as the camera pulls back, as the colors change, we also pull back the curtain, literally, uh, and then we disappear those objects so that we can hide them, right? So as the scene is going, we are showing objects that we need. We're hiding other objects in order to get the visibility that we wanted. So I'll leave it at that. Um, Andy, Sam, please chime in if you yeah, think I'll there's something I missed. I'll jump in with just a couple of quick notes about the actual like export pipeline because I know there were some questions about that that we can address right now. So um, to render this output, like Jonathan said, it's a 4K60 output. Um, the way that we did this was we ran on a, a high-end desktop workstation. So it had a Threadripper Pro, it had 128 gigs of RAM, and it had a uh, RTX 4090 graphics card from NVIDIA. And uh, from a resource utilization perspective, we were probably around 30% on the CPU, we were around 40 to 50 gigs of RAM. And then the GPU was at around 90%. Now, that will probably freak most of you out. But when I explain how Unreal Engine works with GPUs, uh, what you'll find is that the um, you can set it up in such a way where you're just telling the GPU to give you as many frames as it can before it becomes a resource bottleneck. So you're basically saying no matter, you could run it at different resolutions, it wouldn't change the GPU load. What will happen is the GPU will ramp itself up to full utilization and export as many frames as it can. And the way that you measure that is with the frame time. So we wanted the GPU to give us as many novel frames as it could because we had a couple of tricks going on behind the scenes. One of the things that we did was we used uh, DLSS, which is NVIDIA's Deep Learn Super, super Sampling Technology. And we used it for, uh, for super resolution. So we actually rendered the scene at 1440p and using DLSS exported it at 4K. We used it for anti-aliasing so that during that scaling process, we'd have softer edges. And we used it for frame generation. So we were actually only rendering around 30 unique frames directly through the conventional raster pipeline. 
but then it was interpolating additional frames based on the vector motion of the objects in the scene, giving us a 60 FPS output. So from a pure GPU load perspective, this is happening at 1440p30, but it's exporting at 4K60 based on these AI upsampling features. Now, all of the lighting in the scene is done through RTX Global Illumination, as well as the reflections that you see. So when we had those tiles that are out of screen space and they're showing up in the water, that was part of the, the ray trace global illumination. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about whether or not ray trace lighting is really that great. And I know Alex has a lot of opinions on that, having done all of that amazing work on the queen ship inside of just our traditional raster pipeline. And I, I had felt the same way before this project about it. But the thing that changed my mind was when I realized in a live context, when you can't bake these assets, using the ray trace global illumination allows you to have all the complexity of the lighting that you can't pre-bake because you don't know what the content of the zoom video feed is going to be ahead of time. So all those reflections are being done live in the space and all the global illumination is running live without baked assets. This is all running inside well, of the and, Unreal and, Editor itself. And right. especially when you have reflections that you can actually make out. You're like, you know, if you're right, going to exactly. have a reflection there, you absolutely want ray tracing in there. Yeah, absolutely. Which is crazy, right? That we can do this now in yeah. real time. Yeah. You know, those the, the renders from the agency took 18 hours to render and now we're doing this 60 times a second. <laughs> side of Unreal Engine, which is just absolutely insane. Um, now, we exported all that through a Blackmagic Decklink 8K Pro. Um, and again, the benefit of this entire pipeline was that we had real-time editing capabilities. So Jonathan and I came on site. I'll give you a, just a quick example of a moment where it kind of like clicked for me what we were doing. We went to the, to the second day, the closing keynote, and we saw that the chair where Eric was going to sit was located in a place that we didn't expect. And for the first time, we saw the way that the camera was going to interact with that chair, and it was going to show the bottom half of some of the tiles of our Zoom video feeds in the background of a shot. And we said, wait a minute, we can't deal with that. So let's let's get rid of those tiles. And we went into Unreal Engine and live edited out the animation so that everything flowed in an arc over the chair so it wouldn't show up in the camera feed. There was no way we were going to notice that ahead of time because we only saw it when they brought everything together. And if this had been a traditional a traditional rendered asset, we would have had to go back and re-export that entire sequence. And that would take hours. We didn't have time for that. But the director was able to give us feedback in real time about how they wanted this thing to change during the rehearsal. And in the moment, we were able to actually change the way that the scene was composited, the lighting effects, the animations, the transitions, the layout, the geometry, all of that could be edited within seconds of our time um, compared to having to go back and rebake the asset during the off period between rehearsals, which is just a dramatically different way of working. It, uh, and it was that was really exciting for me to see. So it, it's so important, too. I mean, it, it is, you know, we often often say when we're doing production that you never you never finish a production, you just run out of time, you know, and that running out of time is is really the, you, you know, at some point you put pencils down and when you have real time rendered assets, you don't ever have to put your pencil down. You know, you're just, you're constantly moving towards what you're trying to do. And it's, you know, you're and, and finding that, that output. It's, 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 it's really powerful. Now, how did you get, can you explain a little bit more about the pipeline of getting zoom assets or zoom into Unreal? Like how the, how these, uh, these, uh, how everyone, because before you had, a giant farm of, right, exactly. of, uh, of computers. You want to show the material pipeline, Jonathan, how the render targets work? Absolutely, I can do that. So hopping back to my screen share, I'll showcase uh, how we did our material pipeline and the basic process uh, going from the Zoom video that we subscribed to out to the object itself. Um, all right, so let me go ahead and begin. Let's see, I'll start from, I'll open up my content browser, make that bigger. And I'll put those as thumbnails just so that we can see those. Let's see. Make those bigger. 
Um, so I'll begin with the uh, the control logic. So uh, within the blueprint editor, and this can be you know a level blueprint, it can be anywhere within your um, project file. Um, you have the ability to create your logic that uh, that works with the Zoom plugin to subscribe to videos. Um, our logic is a bit intense, as you can see here. We have a lot of nodes, but this is to control the logic of automatically uh, picking users from the meeting, making sure that they're not co-hosts, that they're they're filtered out properly, they have video on, and so on. Right. So we have logic that does all of that by pulling in the Zoom data. And this is the logic that this is what you added to Unreal. So it's it has logic that says it's asking Zoom like where who are they, what are they doing, what are their settings, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. It, essentially, it's a blueprint wrapper for the meeting SDK, right? So if you're familiar with the Zoom meeting SDK, we're just wrapping that into blueprints so it's easier to use for non-developers. Mm -hmm. um, and just as an example of how clear this is, right? Here's an on-emoji reaction received event where, as simple as it sounds, this will trigger every time a, a reaction occurs within the meeting, and you can draw lines off of this and use that to control certain behaviors, right? Which we do in this context as well. Um, and then talking about the video specifically, let me move up, move up to... Sorry, let me go down to here. Just as an example of what it looks like is you have your event uh, your event action. In this case, I have a button from the UI. Uh, one of these buttons, so when I click the button, it performs this action. And this will subscribe the video. Uh, now, this subscription video, this is what's added with the Zoom plugin, among uh, many others. Uh, and you can select the output render target. So a render target is a essentially a pixel buffer, right? It's a, it's a texture that you can dynamically update. So we have a render target that we're outputting to. Uh, right now, I have the user ID blank. But if I typed in the Zoom ID of that participant, and then I trigger this button, it would immediately start subscribing to that participant, right? So, and I, I just want to make sure we're totally clear. So there's no external computers pushing Zoom participants into Unreal. Unreal is essentially joining the meeting like Zoom ISO would, right? I mean, it, it's it's joining the meeting and then delivering all as many of those outputs as, as we want. Is that is that correct? Yes, that's entirely correct. Um, you know, because we, we we added the raw data pipeline, the same pipeline that exists within Zoom ISO, the same pipeline exists within the third party developers who who make these broadcast applications. We put that pipeline directly into this plugin. And it can be. It, it, are the are the participants in a standard Zoom meeting, or are they in a different in di environment? So standard Zoom meeting, um, and it works within breakout rooms and and whatever you have. In fact, actually. Um, uh, I won't show it here, but the Unreal Engine in this current form actually spawns the additional UI of the Zoom window so that you can interact with it uh, within within the Unreal Engine editor. Um, and then again, just to emphasize, right, here's the logic we have for joining and leaving a meeting. Um, and it's it's pretty straightforward, right? We have execute join Zoom meeting where you feed it the meeting number, you feed it the passcode, and it uh, ends up joining the meeting, right? It calls that SDK function. Um, and all of this is hooked up to our UI. So like you saw before, this is a custom user interface we made using Unreal Engine's tools. And we gave ourselves the ability to plug in meeting information. Uh, we gave ourselves controls and options if we wanted to. And then, of course, anything we needed custom. Now, now just to complete the story on the video pipeline, right? Because I think for a lot of people unfamiliar with Unreal Engine, once you get to the render target, it still is not immediately clear as to how you put that in your 3D scene and what, what happens there. So I just wanted to emphasize what, what is actually happening. So I'll go to my gallery tiles here. I'll go to my render targets. So a render target, like I said, is a pixel buffer, right? It is a uh, it is a, a an image. We couldn't define the width and the height. Um, let me pull up a different one here. Uh, let me pull up John here. Um, and you can see this pixel buffer coming in. This is all rendered in real time uh, because we're still pulling data from that meeting. 
Uh, and then these pixels can then be referenced by other textures. Um, so I am actually using this as a texture within my material. So you have your texture, which is pulling in the dynamic data. And then I go to my materials and let me pull up, uh, let's see, I'll pull up this one right here with Andy. It's going to look funny on the, on the circle here, <laughs> but let me switch it over to a plane. Um, and you can see essentially that we are uh, pulling in the render target. Actually, let me, let me go to the uh, master material just to uh, make that a little easier, which is this one right here. So this is my material node setup, in which case I am pulling in that render target, just like a texture, and applying that value to the uh, to the material itself, right? So anybody familiar with working with textures in Unreal Engine, it's the same process, the same pipeline, you bring in that live video. In this case, I have a placeholder that swaps out if there's no video. Um, and then I've duplicated that for all of my different participants, right? So these all swap out to live participants. And then we have the object itself. This object is a mesh. If I go to my details tab, you can see my gallery tile mesh. Underneath that, I have a material, in which case all I have to do is select the material that has the render target, and now we have that live video. So again, just to reiterate, we have the Zoom plugin joining a Zoom meeting from the Blueprints. Using the Blueprint logic, you subscribe to a Zoom video feed, you output that to a render target. Once it's on that render target, you use that as a texture within a material, and then that material gets applied to a mesh just like you would any other material. So you could build everything that we're doing in office hours inside of Unreal. I mean, you could you could theoretically. Is there anything that we would be missing? I don't know. Well, you have um, all the ingredients that Zoom OSC gives you from a data perspective, and you have all the mm -hmm. video elements that Zoom ISO gives you. The only thing that we haven't really talked about is how audio is managed inside of this pipeline, and whether or not you would want, you know, your audio to be managed inside of Unreal Engine itself, or whether you'd still want to externalize that to a proper mixer. Uh, right. That might be a consideration there. But uh, yeah. from a video compositing perspective, yeah, I mean, you can pull all the video in, and you have all the logical information about what's happening, what's contextualizing that video, what's happening in the meeting. All of that's exposed to drag and drop nodes inside of Unreal Blueprints. Yeah. Because you can have, I mean, right now we cut in between things, but you could have the super sources that are popping up there and then just one just kind of zoom in, <laughs> like zoom Yeah, that'd be kind of the, funny. They could, then, they could fly you know. into the super source and fly into a different <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it'd be, be really interesting. It's, it, and it, it's, uh, yeah, I find it fascinating that you can, that it's not, you know, because all of us have been working up until what you've shown here, have been working on the assumption that we have to have a big, a lot of inputs, you know, like how to, whether we're using NDI or whether we're using a lot of other things um, that are there. It's really And look, I mean, we're running this on a gaming computer. Like, yeah. you know, this is not, this is no longer reserved for those with six-figure pocketbooks who can put together these massive rendering pipelines, right? Like you can have yeah. a free download of Unreal Engine pull this plugin into it and just start experimenting with the way that all this comes together. I think that's a huge step towards, you know, democratizing video production and uh, really complex graphical pipelines. Um, so I think I'm really excited about what people are going to do with this. Well, and I, and I love what you've done behind the speaker. Um, the thing that I'm generally thinking about a lot is what do we do in front of the speaker? So a lot of, you know, when I'm looking at what you're doing, being able to grab the, I tend to put organic things behind the speaker because <laughs> I'm a camera guy. And so, um, but I, but I think that uh, being a, this, I think that there's this key thing that we haven't quite figured out with Zoom um, that I think Tony Robbins has gotten to some degree of, of working on it, but, and we've talked about this for years now of the idea that I can, um, I, as a speaker, I can point to somebody or I want someone that that's there and have them just kind of fluidly 
float up. And we've talked a lot about, well, how do we switch to that person and how do we make this work and how do we, and it seems like all of that has kind of gone away. Like now we have most of that, most of that sorted out, right? We built this specifically thinking about that use case of how that host could point to somebody in this gallery view, that tile grows, and now we have a conversation with that person. Uh, that was absolutely built into the design of how this came together, and we're looking forward to see people do stuff like that. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that, yeah, well, we're talking about live events and stage events with LED walls. Let's not forget all the different places that Unreal Engine can go, right? It can go into industrial pre-visualization. It can go into you know uh, virtual production environments where we have camera tracking, and now we can bring Zoom video feeds into AR. VR sets, right? It have, of course, in video games, right, where it came from, there's a whole lot of different vertical markets that this can interact with. And what we're trying to do here is bring the collaboration and low latency, high quality video of Zoom into the environment where Unreal exists in all these different vertical spaces. So that's what I'm pretty excited yeah. to see what people are going to do. That's yeah, really interesting. Uh, anything else you want to show before we jump into the questions? Let's take a shot. Let's, see, right. what they, let's see what they're doing. Yeah. Let's, I think we have the first question. I think you covered a little bit, but let's go ahead and j- jump into the first question. David Brady starts us out uh, with from New York City with what the specs on the Unreal Engine machine at, used at Zoomtopia. What were they? Processor, RAM, I.O., and graphics. We touched on that, but let's make sure we outline yeah, that. Yeah, just to recap. So we had two computers that we used, a primary and a backup. The specs were identical between the systems. They were running Threadripper Pro CPUs. They were running 128 gigs of RAM, and they were running RTX 4090 GPUs. Uh, again, from a resource allocation perspective, that was overspec for what we needed to do, which was a 4K60 output to the Decklink 8K Pro. Um, but you want to overspec. Again, you have to think about the CPU and the GPU differently when you think about utilization numbers, because when you're using things like DLSS, when you're using things like ray tracing, you're telling the GPU, give me as many frames as you can under these circumstances. So it's always going to run at full tilt. It should always run at full tilt. Otherwise, you're leaving frames on the table that you could be rendering. So you have to kind of measure in a different way. But we were looking at maybe 20, 30% on the CPU, uh, 40 to 50 gigs of RAM to load up the environment. And that was just sort of the price of poker, so to speak. You run the scene and it would load that up. And then the GPU doing as many frames as it can. Again, using our, our rendering pipeline, we were rendering uh, through a traditional raster at 1440.30. But then using AI, it's upscaled to 4K60 and exported through the Decklink AK Pro. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. And Douglas, oh, I'm sorry, Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. Was there any type of dump button or broadcast delay built into the system in case someone in the gallery decided to be inappropriate during the keynote? Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so there's a number of different ways to kind of police and... Typically, you're going to have a broadcast delay. You're going to have that dump button that you're asking about. For us, uh, the way we actually went about it was carefully curating who was in that studio audience meeting. So it was a separate meeting. Our main event was in a webinar. And then we had this audience group inside the meeting. And we carefully curated who was going to be allowed in that and what they were going to be and had moderators floating around. We still had moderation. We still always gave ourselves the option of taking it off the screen if we needed to. But we didn't have a a delay to make that so that it never does go to air. That was the acceptable point of risk for us, for this event, for this audience, and for this group. Go ahead, Andy. The only thing I'd add is that the way that we set up the moderation logic, all you had to do was stop somebody's video inside of Zoom. And often we did that not because somebody was being inappropriate because their camera just didn't look good and we didn't want to put it on screen. So inside of Zoom, you just stop their video as the host. And Unreal Engine detects that through our blueprint, flips the tile around to a different person. And we also had an interface inside of Unreal Engine where if we caught it and the video moderator didn't catch it, we could flip the tile manually inside of Unreal. So um, the beauty of it was that we didn't have to like 
Well, Sam was correct. We gated kind of the quality of the people that were in the group, even within that group. If we needed to do additional moderation, it was as simple as stopping their video inside of Zoom. And the plugin could detect that and automatically manage the flipping of the tile to a different person from the pool. Yeah, it's funny, you know, with the point what Sam then, you know, we've, I've been working on virtual events for about a decade and we've gone through about 6,000 participants and someone asked, well, what happens when someone just, you, you put someone on randomly? I'm like, there's been like 10 participants that have randomly been put onto a show for us out of 2,000 events. <laughs> like, like, we just don't, we, if we're going to put them on screen, we're going to make sure that their connection's good, that they're appropriate, that, you know, um, yeah. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next. What is the most effective path to learn to build a minimum viable product in Unreal Engine for production use? Go, Jonathan. Great question. And I think um, I think there's a lot of answers to this. You know, at the end of the day, uh, uh, Unreal Engine can be a very complicated program, but it is also surprisingly uh, simple in some ways, and, and it's, it's very easy to jump into it. Um, but I'll give a few pieces of advice and also discuss the Zoom component specifically. So when the Zoom plugin is released, um, Using it is fairly simple. Uh, like I showed you before, you'll be using the nodes that are built that that subscribe to video, that join meetings, leave meetings, send chat messages, right? They're all labeled clearly with their function and they're all based on the meeting SDK functions. So um, with just a few of those, you can create a simple system that allows you to select a participant through the UI and uh, and subscribe to their video and put it on a target. The other side of it is the output and the more traditional production aspect of how do you get the, the final output away from Unreal Engine and how do you work within that, that framework. For that, I would highly recommend looking into uh, two things, looking into the tutorials by uh, by Epic themselves on how to do the Blackmagic or the Aja input and output. Uh, those are very helpful when it comes to the SDI capture. Um, but then the other thing to look at would be a, a plugin called Offworld Live, the Offworld Live Toolkit. It has a lot of features for uh, virtual webcam outputs, camera outputs. Uh, we actually used uh, some of the Offworld Live toolkit for uh, Zimtopia as well. So I'd recommend taking a look at that as well as the uh, the Epic Marketplace assets. Next question. Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. Is there a timeline for the release of the Unreal Engine preset? Go ahead, Andy. So right around now, we're beginning to provide it uh, to select uh, groups that have existing expertise in Unreal Engine to get their feedback. We look forward to uh, making it available to everybody uh, early next year. Next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida is up next. What steps did you take to help the remote and venue audience interact with the presenters and with each other? I go to Andy. I'll let Sam give all the specific details, but one thing that I would just highlight is the way that we had sort of a blended audience, again, from multiple different locations, fully remote coming in through the Zoom webinar and Zoom events, on-site at an AMC theater, or on-site at the main stage of Zoomtopia itself. And one of the things that we did this year was we had that common pool of chat where they could all see the same messages sent by everybody else, interact with each other, and we highlighted those interactions on screen through our Zoom graphics toolkit. So I think that amplified a lot of the interactivity between the audiences. And again, we spent the first five minutes of our presentation talking specifically about how to engage. When the host came on stage, they talked specifically about, hey, if you are a fully remote attendee, this is how you engage. If you're in an AMC theater, this is how you engage. If you're sitting in front of me, this is how you engage. These are the tools. We trained the audience right at the beginning to utilize those tools throughout the event. Go ahead, Sam. So that's where, especially if you watched what we did last year. Last year, um, we came up with this companion webinar concept. And that was where we were creating a separate webinar for the in-room attendees so that they were able to join to participate in chat and Q&A and the non-video uh, elements. Um, we did that and then we did a 
very complicated fix with Zoom OSC where we were sending chats back and forth between the others with some bots. And it worked. And it's it's actually been really neat to see that kind of prototype last year and then come to the product this year. This year, it was a lot easier. Um, everyone was in one webinar, except for our studio audience, which we had in a meeting so we could get their video. Everybody else was in the same webinar with each other. Whether I'm in an AMC, whether I'm at home, whether I'm in the room in San Jose, all of them are joining the same session through the same Zoom event. Zoom events knows what type of ticket they have. So it knows whether to give them the audio and video streams or whether it should keep that uh, shut off and start them as a in-room attendee where it's just giving them the non-audio video low bandwidth usage pieces. And of course, they have the option of turning stream on if we got that decision wrong for them. If they're you know an in-person ticket, but they're in their hotel room this morning waking off a hang uh, working off a hangover um but um because we were able to do that it meant that everyone is on that same level playing field they all do have the same interactive options that they have that's why we're in zoom is to be able to engage and interact with our audience it's also why our answer was what it was for the broadcast delay question it's why we didn't have a delay there because uh, i remember it was actually zoomtopia last year i think where jonathan turned to me and he went this is actually like it's kind of blowing my mind thinking about how fast this whole pipeline is that i can be someone at home see myself come up on the video wall react and watch my reaction in real time um i'm it's i can actually have that back and forth no matter where i am no matter how i am and that's the beauty of zoom and why it's really exciting to be able to do what we're doing here next question david brady new york city back with was the zoom room pro av solution in the pipeline for the keynote go ahead sam so the short answer is no um some of that is release availability as we were planning for Zoomtopia and how far out we were working. But uh, on the main stage in the keynote, we were using Zoom ISO for our remote guests. So on day two, when we had uh, Charlie Munger as our keynote speaker virtually coming over Zoom, we were pulling that out with Zoom ISO. Same thing with um, the AMC watch parties. They were in a, in a traditional talent meeting setup being pulled out via ISO and then actually fed into Unreal over SDI versus the gallery where that was actually happening inside that Unreal engine like we talked about. Uh, Andy, for more? Yeah, go ahead, Andy. Yeah, all I would say in addition to that is that, you know, we are thinking about this type of use case for the Pro AV Zoom Room, but this year we wanted to show you using tools that that you can use or will soon be able to use how you could do it today. Um, and the, the Pro AV Zoom Room is more of a forward-looking thing that I look forward to sharing more about next year. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, how do you keep the UI, the user interface, from appearing on the deck link output? Go ahead, Jonathan. Can't hear you. Oh, can't hear you, Jonathan. Sorry, one second. Yeah. Uh, this is this is a great question, and we can explain the video output specifically. So um, I'll go back to my screen share on this um, and show you the way we have these cameras. So there's a difference in Unreal Engine between viewports and the cameras. Now, the cameras were fundamentally uh, designed for video game cinematics, right? You can imagine a transition or a sequence where there's a static camera or moving camera in a video game. Um, but this system can also be used for virtual production and can also be used for use cases like what we have. So in addition to my viewport, which you see me moving around in, I also have this physical camera object. Uh, this physical camera object uh, can be move, move around. You can give it different camera settings. Uh, just for fun, I, I, uh, I set this to be shooting on IMAX 70 millimeter because this is the only time in my life I'll be able to shoot on IMAX, right? Um, but you can set these parameters, which replicate... Maybe, maybe. Maybe, perhaps, yeah. 
Um, they replicate real-world camera settings with focus and uh, and depth of field. Um, and then this output itself is what we're capturing. So to be very specific, we're using Offworld Live, the plugin, to take that camera and to output to a render target, again, one of those uh, pixel buffers. We're doing this just for efficiency and performance reasons. And then we are using the media capture output built into Unreal Engine to take just that render target, just that camera. So I can stop and start the capture, and it'll capture that render target, output it through the Blackmagic output that we've designated, which you see here down at the bottom. So hopefully that answers the question. The the uh, On the UI specifically, we only render the UI on the viewport. We don't render the UI on the camera itself for obvious reasons. Next question. This came in from the QR code system here in Office Hours. David Brady in New York says, for the Pro AV rig that was showcased at Zoomtopia Recap, how do we get the spec on gear? And is or are Zoom ready, willing, and able to bring out this infrastructure? Is the want or need, he notes, is real? Go ahead, Andy. I'm glad, I'm glad you're excited about the Pro AV Zoom room, which is sitting here in my background today. I know you're all jealous. Um, we look forward to sharing more about it uh, next year. Today, we're you know trying to focus more on the uh, Zoomtopia production element itself, but we definitely will come back and share more details about the Pro AV Zoom Room. What is our go-to-market strategy? How is all that going to work? How are you going to get your hands on it? And, and we'll talk about that at a later date. Yeah, and as soon as as soon as you guys are ready, you're welcome to come back. No, thank <laughs> so, you very so much. like yeah. what you just give us the date. Uh, we are super excited about the Pro AV rig. Uh, next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand has this one. Given that DaVinci Resolve, Unreal Engine, both with hardware GPU acceleration, they all work fine on my Ryzen-based Linux PC. Were any of your test machines using Linux? Andy? So right now, the Unreal Engine plugin is Windows exclusive, and I can see the grin on Courtney's face all the way over here. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but we so most of the Unreal Engine production pipeline takes place inside of a Windows environment, so that's where we focused. Now we do have a meeting SDK for Linux. We released it earlier this summer, and it is based around our raw data pipeline. So it is conceivable that somebody could do similar things using the Linux platform, but based on the majority, the vast majority of users of Unreal Engine being in Windows environments. Um, uh, for this type of work. That's where our focus is right now. Next question. Roscoe Jones is curious from Madison, Indiana, about how many operators there were, not counting those who were moderating meetings and how it might scale in operation since the hardware requirements have been reduced. Go ahead, Jonathan. So I'll let Sam speak if he wants to about uh, all of the operators backstage for the main stage. But from the Unreal Engine side specifically, we just had two operators, um, myself and Al from our team. Uh, he was on the backup system. I was on the primary. Um, now, Unreal Engine, you saw that interface we had to, to go between the scenes. Um, but we, we definitely could have automated that or we could have connected that to an OSC system so that somebody else could have triggered those commands. Um, but fundamentally, we set everything up to be a linear workflow, one after the other, with the ability to move back if we needed to and make adjustments as needed. But uh, two operators was the answer. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. When you talk about a custom user interface, do you mean that the UI elements or code are custom built and not stock Unreal Engine components? Go ahead, Andy. What we mean there is if we used Unreal Engine's interface drafting ability and the custom interface was that we we laid out a UI specifically to operate Zoomtopia itself. So the UI that Jonathan showed was drafted inside of Unreal's UI editor suite and um, using Unreal Engine components and then tied into blueprints for the different functionality that we wanted. What we mean by custom is that we built a bespoke interface specifically for this event that gave us a dashboard to do the kind of things that we needed to do for this show. 
And that's what you almost always want to do with Unreal. I mean, especially if you're in a live environment, is you're going to build it out. And, and that's one of the real powers of it's something we do without Unreal Engine. But the the ability to to define your interface is incredibly powerful for, for uh, live events. Go ahead, Jonathan. And I think expanding beyond that, right, it's not just defining your interface, it's defining your entire environment, both from a scene standpoint, but also from a behavior standpoint, right? So we didn't quite demonstrate this, but just as an example, uh, you know, we have the tiles floating up and down with the blueprint logic. We also have the tiles, if there's an emoji that is, that is, uh, uh, if somebody in the meeting uses one of the reactions, that emoji appears on their tile with an animation, right? And that's all behavior that we defined. Um, and what's nice about Unreal Engine is that it's it's based on modular blueprints and based on modular components called actors. So we created a single actor for one of the tiles that we could then instantiate for the other tiles and have as many as we needed. And that way we could easily iterate and make edits to the first one and all the behavior propagates. Um, so this means that you know, you can have the most complicated actor with all the different behaviors that you want and create your, your environment with that. Uh, and then it's very easy to propagate that out to the others. Next question. David Brady coming back out of New York in one of our QR code submissions. Can, will, or do you guys perform site surveys? There are some screens here to play with and we'd like to talk. <laughs> Go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, we we certainly can. Um, I'll go ahead and shoot you an email and we can uh, continue that conversation. But, you know, again, we we... We're not Unreal Engine operators, right? Aside from Symptopia, we're not uh, an Unreal Engine integration company, um, but we certainly want to hear different use cases. So please reach out and, and let us know if you have a direct interest in using Unreal Engine um, and we can we can work something out. And that's a good business model, by the way. And what, you know, Jonathan's saying, he's not that. <laughs> but if, if for, for people, I mean, I think that there is a, you, you've seen what, what, what was there. I think you'll have some people doing it in-house, but being a company that specializes in Unreal solutions for Zoom, I think looks like it's a business that wants to be thought about hard as we go into 2024. Um, next question. Peter Moore, back from Auckland, New Zealand with this one. Is Zoom providing sample templates for Unreal Engine users? And are you building in old world tool tips for things like when mouse or pointers hover over objects? Go ahead, uh, Andy. Oh boy, I'm excited about this answer. So everything that we just demonstrated will be part of a template file that will come with the plugin. So our, we're, we're basically taking the the a version of the stage experience that we built for our own event and making that the you know the hello world for your projects and examples. So you could take our gallery view that we created for Zomtopia and plop that into your project with all the logic, all the blueprints, all the nodes, the user interface, all of that. And you have that as a starting point. Um, so we're, we're super excited about that. Uh, the templates are instrumental to the way that we plan to provide this because uh, certainly we want to give you infinite customization. And that's the whole point of the blueprints. But we're actually building widgets and things that are sort of presets, higher level logic, things that live on top of that. You saw that whole render pipeline that Jonathan talked about. To you, that's just a tile that you bring into your scene and you assign a video to it. You know, we're, we're simplifying all this for the end user. And I'm really excited about the templates that will be provided stock with the plugin when it becomes available next year. That's fantastic. Next question. Uh, from Douglas Carmichael, where could I find documentation for the Unreal user interface editor? I did the first hour with Unreal Engine a while back, but I'd love to try building UIs. Go ahead, Andy. Unreal uh, has amazing documentation. It's it's on Epic's website for it. Um, you can even see uh, 
engine version by version, how the documentations evolve over time. So if you're using a particular version of Unreal, you can find all the corresponding information for it. Uh, it's all available on their website. Um, you know, Jonathan and I were not like Unreal UI experts coming into this project. We figured it out as we go. And I think that's, that's how most people tend to approach this until they build up that wealth of expertise. And thankfully with Unreal Engine, it's, it's pretty easy to do. I have to say that the, the best the best uh, drug for uh, for learning almost anything is adrenaline. <laughs> so, <laughs> so having a deadline and having a t- having a tool is the is the best way to kind of move things forward. So, uh, next question. Roscoe Jones back from Madison, Indiana. Any hints on what you might want to do next with these new tools? Any companies we should follow who are designing for these new tools? Go, Andy. I think the next step for us is to work and partner directly with our customers who already have specific needs that. Unreal Engine can solve for them and and deeply integrating Zoom into those pipelines and then speaking through the customer's voice about the value and how that works. And so, you know, as Alex, you mentioned before, if as companies are thinking about how to move beyond Zoom grids as a texture behind presenters and into more interactive experiences powered by these integrations, our team is interested in working directly with those companies to sort of supercharge, be an accelerated on-ramp to get them started and get them kicked off using this technology. So for us, it's through the customer's voice is where our next step is going to be. Next question. Greg Gibson's up next. Douglas Carmichael's up next. During the event, do you run the show from the Unreal editor or do you compile it to an executable? Go ahead, Andy. That's an excellent question. And it was a point of debate for us uh, up until just a couple weeks before the show. Do you run this in the editor or do you actually build a standalone executable and export it? Ultimately, what we decided to do was run an editor so that we had the ability to change anything about the environment or scene inside of the rehearsal room. Um, now, you certainly could export this. In fact, there's there's many different types of pipelines that you could use here from running it in editor with things like um, live link to be able to pull in external data. You could be using end display instead of a deck link to do the outputs and have a render farm supporting it. You could compile this into a standalone executable by exporting it from the game engine. And we, we are working to support the multiple types of use cases that somebody may use Unreal from a sort of mechanical perspective. But for Zootopia, we ran it in the editor so we could have full control over the sequences, the geometry, the lighting, how Zoom was integrated, all that stuff we had full control over. Um, so that was uh, why we did that approach for the show. And for an executable, you would theoretically build the whole interface, you know, for a user that might not be as technical. And then, and then, so you'd, you'd kind of pre-bake it um, and, and put it all together and then, and then build out an interface so that they don't have to, there's not as much flexibility, but there's a lot more rails, right? And there's also a lot more efficiency by doing it that way, because again, we talked about how we were using ray trace global illumination so that any real-time edited changes would be reflected in our lighting and reflections. If we bake the project, we could then bake the shadow maps, bake the lighting into the environment and not have to render that. You could do a traditional raster pipeline, um, but you lose the flexibility of being able to do literally anything with the lighting and geometry that you want. Uh, You have to bake those assets during the export process. So uh, pros and cons to both ways. Both are legitimate ways of working. um, But when you're going into, I think, a live environment, um, there are many advantages to using the editor because it's a full toolkit for modifying the environment. Uh, Last question. Yeah, here's a great Gibson one from Washington, D.C. Can Andy talk a little bit about the coming vMix 27 Zoom integration? How is that going and what can we expect? Yeah, so um, I definitely can jump on that. Um, 
I want to, I think it would be great to, for you guys to get vMix on for a second hour at some point, talk more about vMix 27, because there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. But vMix is joining a family of integrations uh, that we talked about at NAB. Um, I think it's like nine different companies at this point. All the, all the major broadcast tools now have direct Zoom integrations. And uh, to tie it back into Unreal Engine, Unreal Engine is sort of part of that story where the tools that you want to use to produce your events, produce your broadcasts, now have Zoom directly inside of them. Uh, you don't have to have these external decoders, but those external decoders still exist for the projects or the tools that don't have Zoom integrated. You can now you can still use Zoom ISO to get the video feed into it. But now more and more of those production tools uh, are running Zoom inside of themselves using the same core technology that we use to build Zoom ISO now available in third-party applications. So today you've seen how that services itself in Unreal Engine. Obviously in vMix, a totally different workflow, but the same core technology the same developer platform, ultimately the same Zoom product and ecosystem. Andy, Sam, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Like really exciting stuff. Now, when when again do you think that this will be rolling out the stuff that we can actually play with? So if you want to play with it, <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we know there's several members of the Office Hours community that are interested in, um, in Unreal Engine. They have uh, various levels of expertise in it. We are working directly with partners with customers uh, who have that experience right now. Um, so we are providing this to be available to them in, in the coming month. Um, in terms of general availability for it, and when you can go get it from like the Unreal Engine marketplace as a download, that is our stated intention to make this available through the marketplace. And we do plan to do that early next year after we've had a chance to integrate the feedback from the experts and all the different industry verticals, get a chance to report back to us, say, hey, this is working, this is not working, this is where we need more documentation. In a the typical way for our team, we partner with our customers first, figure out their needs, make sure we package all that up, and then we GA it. So it's uh, something that we're happy to provide uh, very, very soon uh, for customers who have specific interest in Unreal Engine or existing expertise in Unreal Engine while we build up the documentation so that those who are less familiar with the product or technology have an easier on-ramp, an easier way of getting started without as much hand-holding in the early stages. So. Uh, to, I would say very, very soon for those who have that experience, and then early next year uh, for general availability of the plugin. That's great. Thank you so much for your time. It's, it's always such an honor to have this team on. Um, you know, obviously, everything that Office Hours does is built on top of on top of Zoom. So we're, we're, uh, we're, we're just really uh, grateful that you that you're all able to spend a little time with us and uh, show this off. And we're really excited about where you're going with Unreal Engine. And I think that we're going to be doing, you know, thinking about more labs. I think a couple of us are going to start playing with it. And then think about labs as it starts to become more widely available, because I think that we're we're super interested in being able to integrate this uh, tighter into what we're doing as well. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. Great questions today, by the way. Really, really awesome conversation. Yeah. Uh, and uh, thank you to the panelists for being here for the first hour and the second hour and making this show possible. Uh, also, thank you to the, to, again, to the producers for all the great questions, both in the first hour and second hour, keeping everything rolling forward. And thanks to the incredible team on the back end that develops this system that we use um, to make this work. This is not a vanilla uh, Zoom meeting <laughs> so it's by any um, way, shape, or form. Uh, and uh, so there's an incredible team on the back end that develops that, um, an incredible team that's managing what we're doing on every day, and an incredible team that's actually cutting this show and putting it together and supporting it in real time seven days a week. And thank you so much for your contribution from everyone to make this actually possible. Uh, in the Tlaloc Traversal today, we traveled answering all these questions, 99,000 miles. Um, that is 159,000 kilometers, and that is 785. Wait for it. Bananas for scale. All right, uh, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. <laughs> 